Turn, if you would, to the book of Job, Job 1, and I'll read the whole chapter. And as you're turning there, I uh, want to say it is a delight to be here. It's a, it's a bit strange for me to be here in some way because this is not the building I remember. I did drive past the building on Montrose Street yesterday, and uh, what a blessing it was to be there all those years, and the Lord met us there so often, and it was a joy to be there. But it's a joy to be here as well. I've been in the ministry now 26 years, so I'm just at the tipping point where I've been a minister away from Riverside longer than I was a minister at Riverside. And uh, always thankful for the memories I have of this congregation, for your patience with me in my early years of ministry and uh, it's, uh, I still have such fond memories and recollections and thankfulness to the Lord for his kindness in my life so many years ago. So now back to the word of God. So Job 1, I want to read the whole chapter, and then I'm going to read from James, and the sermon will focus on the passage in James. So there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. 
While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then if you turn to the New Testament, to the book of James chapter 1, James 1, I'll read the first four verses, though the sermon will focus on verses 2 to 4. James 1, listen to the word of God, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In the 1700s, in the northwest of Scotland, there was a young couple by the name of James and Susan Schulfield. One day they went to visit their pastor, William Grimshaw. They were in severe anguish and distress because their little girl, Mary, had died at the age of five weeks. They were saddened by that, but particularly Susan was in distress. She wasn't really coping very well with her little girl's death. In fact, she was treating the little girl as if she were still alive, refusing to acknowledge that the breath had departed from her little girl's mouth. And so they went to visit their pastor, William Grimshaw, in order to see, receive counsel. At this time, neither James nor Susan nor their pastor, William Grimshaw, were Christian believers. They did not know the Lord. And this was a situation that puzzled William Grimshaw deeply. What was he going to say? He didn't know how to minister the word of God to this couple. And his advice was basically this, that they should put away all gloomy thoughts, hang out with partiers, distract themselves, and soon all will be right. So they went away, tried to do that, came back a few weeks later and said, it's not working. Is there something you can help us with? And then William Grimshaw told them of his own dilemma, that he did not know the Lord himself and really couldn't give him any counsel. But he said this as they were leaving, at least this, never despair of the mercy of God. 
Well, as it turns out in the providence of God, both William Grimshaw and James and Susan later came to know the Lord. But you can understand why James and Susan would go to their pastor in their time of distress and grief. They want to hear from God. They want to know how they are to understand these things. They want to know what they are to be feeling. What are they to think in the midst of such tragedy and discouragement? They want to know what God's perspective is on their situation. And so they went to their pastor. I can imagine that you would do the same, but here's a question I have for you. If you went to your pastor and poured out your heart to him because of some particular disturbance in your life, and he would say to you, my dear sister, count it all joy. My dear brother, count it all joy. What would you think about him? Would you think him insensitive, harsh, unkind? that he couldn't really enter into the sadness and grief of your situation, that he's just given platitudes. What do you mean, count it all joy? This is the least instinctive thing we do when we have trials in our life. What would you think if your pastor did that? Well, it's the very thing that Pastor James does here in this passage. As he writes this letter to Christians who, it seems, were once a part of his congregation in Jerusalem and have now been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, he says, counted all joy, my brothers. Now, thankfully, he does call them my brothers and in some way sympathizing with them, enabling them to recognize that he does feel for them, that he's part of the family as well. But still his words, counted all joy, come like a gunshot on a still night. It's shocking. What do you mean, count it all joy? How are we supposed to do that when our life is unraveling, when the troubles mount against us, when we are so discombobulated and frustrated that we don't know what to do? Well, it's not just Pastor James saying these things as if he is some expert in human psychology. It is actually what God himself would say to you. In the midst of your trials and difficulties, whatever they are, you are to count it all joy. What I want to do this morning is open up these verses for you to help you to count it all joy, to see why you're uh, enabled to do so by the Spirit of God. So the first thing I want to look at is the experience of trials. Notice what James says there in verse 2. First of all, trials are to be expected. He doesn't say, count it all joy, my brothers, if you face trials or meet trials of various kinds. But he says, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is our lot in life. This is what it means to live under uh, in the world that's under the curse of sin. None of us can ever be exempt from trials and hardships. If you're not going through difficulty now, you will or you have been. Because this is our lot in life. It is through tribulations, Paul says, that we enter the kingdom of God. And so trials come upon all of us. Uh, secondly, trials are varied. 
when you meet trials of various kinds. The word that uh, James uses here is, is the word that's used for multicolored. As, as many colors there are on the spectrum, so are there trials in the life of God's people. Uh, the Christians to whom Paul, uh, James is writing were probably facing financial and religious opposition. Financial because they've been uprooted from where they lived and now how to make their way in a new community. Religious because they were Christians and that's why they had been driven out of Jerusalem. But James here cast the net wide to include all kinds of trials. Trials of health, trials of loneliness, trials of tensions because of relationship. Tensions sometimes because there are no relationships. Trials of the body, trials of the mind, trials of the heart. We have all kinds of trials that we all experience, and your trial is different from every other person's trial. There are unique trials and varied trials in our life. So we all have trials. The trials are all of various kinds. And then the third thing that James says is that though trials are to be expected, when trials come, they're actually quite unexpected. The ESV says it like this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. But that's way too tame. That's not really what James is saying. The word translated meet is used in the story of the man who was traveling from Jericho down to Jerusalem. And he fell among thieves. That's what James is saying here. Is that uh, it's not just that we meet trials. Like we're walking down the street and say, Ah, there's a trial that comes up to you and shakes your hand. No, trials overtake you. Trials come upon you sneakily. And they're unexpected. Even though, even though we're all expecting trials, when they actually come, we say, Well, I never saw that coming. Trials overtake us. They throw us down. They overwhelm us. They throw us to the ground. They are unexpected and disruptive in our lives. So that's the experience of trials. We all face them. We all face all kinds. And when they come, they're unexpected. But what are you to do in those trials? Well, this is what James says. You are to counted all joy. Now, James uh, is well aware of us, and he knows how we generally respond to trials. As I mentioned, joy is the least instinctive response. No one, when they hear a cancer diagnosis, break down and praise God because they have cancer. No, we are frustrated when we have trials. We are discouraged. We despair. We complain, we grumble. Very few of us count it all joy. And James understands that. That's why he says what he says. Because though he understands that we fall into trials, he knows as well that we don't fall into joy. That this is not a default position for even for believers when they face trials. And so James is very particular about the word that he uses. He says you're to count it all joy. You're to consider it. You're to think it through. And as you engage your mind, you are then to reason yourself to joy. That's what James is saying here. 
It's not that joy is what will naturally come. It, it probably won't come naturally. But you need to harness your mind. You need to grab a hold of the reins and steer your mind to joy. That is, you're not to be passive in the whole endeavor, but to be active, to pursue joy in the midst of your trials. One of my dear friends, uh, he's been dead for 400 years, Thomas Goodwin. That's probably why he's one of my dearest friends. But I've really profited from him. But uh, he gives an illustration of this. Uh, In uh, 1666, uh, the city of London had this massive fire that burned for five days. One third of the city was destroyed. And for Thomas Goodwin... What was particularly painful is that one half of his library was burned. He loved his books. He loved learning. So what's he going to do? This really unsettled him. He was a theologian of top-notch ability, professor, pastor. And uh, this really shook him. So you know what he did? He took James 1, 1 through 5, and wrote a 60 to 70 page treatise on it. But you know what James, what, what Thomas Goodwin was doing? He was, he was forcing his mind to think biblically in the face of trials. He was counting it all joy. He was considering it. He was thinking it through. He wasn't just emoting, but he was carefully, deliberately training himself to count it all joy. See, if you don't do that, if you listen to the wisdom of the world, they're going to tell you when you face trials, just uh, put away all gloomy thoughts, hang out with partiers, distract yourself, and everything will be all right. If you listen to yourself, you're just going to mope and grumble. What you need to do is direct your mind to God and his word so that you can count it all joy. I think this is an important point uh, because, because what we tend to do when we go through time, trials is to isolate ourselves from people. And the trials become all-consuming in our life. What we should be doing, of course, is that we should be talking to a trusted, mature Christian friend to help us work through it, or, or an elder, or a pastor. How are we to think? What are we to do? How are, should we respond to this? Give me wisdom and counsel. We ought to be focusing on the word of God, sitting under the ministry of the word so that we are shaped in our trials. We tend to just want to be alone, to just saturate ourselves in our situation, oblivious to everyone else. We don't don't even sometimes want to come to worship because we know that people are then going to ask us questions and we don't want to talk about it. We We just want to wallow in our sadness. What we need to do is is resist every inclination to avoid God and his word and his people so that we might learn to reason ourselves to joy in the midst of our trials. Well, why should we count it all joy? Why does James say this? Well, he gives a reason for it at the beginning of verse 3, where he says, For you know, 
Well, what do you know in the midst of trials? Notice as well how James is pointing to the activity of the mind again. Count it all joy. Not because you feel, but because you know. What do I know in the midst of trials? That's the question. And James says, because you know the plans and purposes of God for you in the midst of your trials and through the hardships that you are experiencing. And before we get to that, I think it's important to highlight that James is not suggesting that we ought to count the trials themselves as a good thing. There's no way you can dress up cancer or marital breakup or relationship failure or uh, wayward children as if they are good things. This is all the result of sin in this world. And we feel the effects of it. And uh, it's not the trial itself that is joy. We ought to understand that they're an intrusion in God's good creation. This is not the way God designed things to be in the beginning. They are cruel and harsh. And, and also, when, when James says that you're to count it all joy, he's, he's not saying that you shouldn't have any other responses. That it is right at times to be angry, a righteous anger, of course, to grieve, to lament, to mourn, to weep, to be sad and confused. We're not to be stoical or, or to think that uh, we have to go through life with a smile pasted on our face, even in uh, trials that bombard us. Well, what about Job, you say? Job worshipped God. Indeed, he did. But he didn't worship God with fancy clothes and a happy face. We read there that Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his fair head and fell on the ground in exhaustion and weariness, overwhelmed by the tragedies that have struck him. That's how he worshipped. So don't be too hard on yourself when you cry, when you're confused, when you feel dark and melancholy in the midst of your trials. And don't think that joy can't coexist with these other emotions either. So why are we to count it all joy? Well, because of what God is doing in your life in the midst of these trials. Well, what is he doing? Well, let's look at the links that James makes here in verse 3. First of all, he says, For you know that the testing of your faith. So the first thing that God is doing in trials is testing your faith. Now, uh, generally, when we think of God testing our faith, we think that he's doing that in order to determine whether faith is actually there or if it's real. Is it a fair weather faith or is it a faith that really clings to God in Jesus Christ? We know that trials do have that effect. Uh, That uh, sometimes as people go through uh, deep waters and dark places, they, uh, they reject God. They turn their face against him. They raise their fist and say, who do you think you are? As they reject God and his word and their own confession. That trials sometimes do that. And they show in these circumstances that that faith was real. For some people, trials draw them to God, and it confirms the existence of faith. For others, 
it shows that there never really was faith. But I don't think that's what James is saying here. I don't think he's saying that uh, trials come upon us in order to see whether we have faith or not. He's saying that trials come upon us to make our faith stronger, to make it more resilient. Some of you might know the app Couch to Five Kilometers. I speak not uh, autobiographically, but I've read about this. But it's a, it's a program where uh, the first week you exercise for three days and you, you might walk a minute and then run a minute and then walk a minute. And then the next time you run two minutes and walk a minute. And, and so every day you're, 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 you increase the amount of time you run. And then by the end of nine weeks, uh, guaranteed, you'll be running five kilometers. And what you're doing as you increase the the amount of time you run is that you're you're putting resistance on your muscles and your legs and on your heart and on your lungs. And that resistance is designed to make them stronger so that it becomes easier as you go along. At least that's the theory. That's what they tell me. And so that's what God is doing in our lives. He's putting resistance in our life so that our spiritual muscles are strengthened and developed and become stronger and more capable of exercising and more capable of experiencing strife and hardship in our lives. He's testing us. He's strengthening our faith so that it becomes stronger. You know, when the uh, you're on a boat and the water is calm, you don't hang on to anything. But when the waves pick up and rocks your boat, you hang on with all your might to the rails in the boat. And that strengthens your muscles. Trials are there to make your faith stronger. But then notice what else James says. That's the testing of your faith. And then the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, that's an interesting word in the Greek. It's, it's made up of, of two words, which mean remain under. And so it's talking about endurance here, of stick of continuing in your trials. Because you know that this is important because Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved. And, and it isn't that you need to start the race, you need to finish the race in order to know the blessing of God. So imagine a weightlifter, he has, he has jerked up, uh, the, the, uh, the weights and they're over his head now and he's, he's holding this under him or he's holding this above his head. He's remaining under. And he needs to remain under because if he falls, if it falls, of course, that's going to do great damage to him. Suppose that's why they call them dumbbells, because they'll do damage to your head. And so he needs to remain under. He needs to endure. He needs to persist as he carries this weight. James says that's what God's doing. So as you grow stronger through trials, you're more able to endure in the Christian life, to press on, to keep going. God's doing this for your good. Because if you don't have trials, then you will not make it to the end. You will not endure. You will not keep running. But the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance, 
continuance in the Christian life. But that's not the goal yet. Because James says more in verse 4, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's God's design. Not just to test and strengthen your faith, not just to enable you to persevere, but he's actually doing it for your perfection, for your maturity, your completeness, completeness, so that you lack nothing. Remember what our Lord said in Matthew 5, that you're to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's God's design for you, to make you perfect. I mean, that's the way he created you, didn't he? That uh, after he had created Adam and Eve in his own image, he said that it was very good. Uh, Adam and Eve were created in true righteousness and holiness. They were perfect. And then sin came in and ruined so much and devastated and distorted Adam and Eve so that they became children of their father, the devil, looked more like him than they looked like God. They became ruined and so unrecognizable compared to their former glory and dignity. There's a section of uh, Lethbridge where there are numerous people on drugs and they walk the streets and they're just sorry looking people, just ruined and devastated, just a glimmer of the former glory they have as humans created in the image of God. It's so devastating, so discouraging. And God doesn't want you to remain that way. And that's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Because Christ is the perfect image of God. This is what perfection, what maturity, what lacking nothing looks like. It's Christ as the God-man. And Christ, by his death on the cross, has not only taken care of the condemnation that sin brings upon us. Though he does that, thank God he does that, by taking upon himself the curse that we deserve. But his design is also for restoration, to bring us back to our former glory, to make us exactly like himself, conform to his image in knowledge and righteousness and holiness with fellowship with God as our Father. God's design in the gospel of Jesus Christ is to make you like Christ, not just to forgive your sins, but to conform you to the image of Christ. And that's why he brings trials in your life, because that's what trials do. I remember when I was here years ago that Mrs. Taylor used to polish her silver. I said in my congregation in in, uh, Lethbridge that no one polishes silver anymore, and then I was kindly reprimanded by the janitor who told me that they polish the silver Lord's Supper cup and <laughs> plate regularly. So, But, you know, very few people polish silver. Just stainless steel is fine, thank you very much. It's a lot easier. But Mrs. Taylor used to polish silver. And it was beautiful when it was done because, you know what, silver tarnishes over time. And so you put some paste on it. I've done it before. Uh, I know this better than couch to five kilometers, let me tell you. Um, so you put the paste on, and then you, you rub the paste in, and, and the friction takes away the tarnish. And you know that you're done when you can look into the silver and see yourself looking back at you. 
Well, that's what God's doing. That's what Christ is doing in your life through these trials and hardships, sovereignly ordaining all circumstances in your life, bringing friction and difficulty and challenges to you so that the tarnish of sin is removed, so that you gleam once more, so that Christ looks at you and he sees his own image looking back at him. And that's what he's doing throughout life. It's a process that is never completed. In fact, the the last trial that we face in life is death itself. And then there's instantaneous glory because we see Christ and then uh, we, we become like him. Remember how John says that? And, and then Christ is completely happy because he sees himself in us. But through life, this is what God is doing. He's pursuing your perfection to make you like his son. That's why you can count it all joy. You know what God's doing in your life. It's not a mystery to you. You know, we, we sometimes think that uh, I don't know why this trial is coming upon me. And, and we try to figure out, why, why are you doing this, Lord? And, and the answer actually is quite simple. This is why I'm doing it. Now, we might not know all the particular details of what God is doing in our life and why this trial at this time in this intensity. We might not know all that, but we can trust him with that, can't we? He's kind and gracious and has demonstrated himself to be a a God of compassion and sweetness. But we do know what he's doing. That's what Paul's saying, or James is saying. Count it all joy, my brothers, for you know that God is pursuing your good, that he has the your best blessing at heart, that his goal is for your good as well as for his own glory. So count it all joy. There's a couple of things I'd like to say in closing. First, that I could hear some of you say, well, if that's what perfection is going to cost, then... I'm okay to be imperfect, really. Or, or to put it in the couch to five, potato, uh, five, couch to five kilometers. <laughs> you know how I did that, right? Couch potato. Couch to five kilometers. You know, if, that's, if it's going to be that painful to get to five kilometers, I'll just stay on the couch. Thank you very much. It wasn't that uncomfortable anyway. And, uh, and so, so we're, we're happy. We're content all too often to, to live mediocre Christian lives, to just be satisfied with a half-hearted, lukewarm devotion to the Lord. And you know that's not God's design for you. He wants to make you perfect, complete, lacking nothing. He wants you to be all that you can be for his glory. He wants you to be completely devoted to Christ and his cause. He doesn't want you to lollygag in the Christian life. He wants you to strive to enter in, to agonize to enter in. He wants you to run, not meander. He wants you to fight the good fight of faith. And so you know that uh, those sentiments are subpar. They're not really Christian sentiments, this settling for less in the Christian life. I hear you say that because that's what I hear myself say. 
And one of the solaces I have when I hear myself say that is that, that God's going to polish that out of me too. He is so committed to my holiness that he'll bring that out of me as well. So that there will be within me a passion, not only for his glory, but a passion for holiness to strive to be all that he has in the gospel made me to be in Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing I want to say, is that banish all mediocrity, pursue holiness, strive, and uh, gladly embrace God's plans for your holiness, even if it means pain and hardship. And then the second thing is that... uh, you might wonder how it's possible to count it all joy. That you can't quite figure out how to do that. And um, I get that. And I think James gets that. And that's why he says in verse 5, that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. So in your striving to count it all joy, because I'm, I'm confident that's what you're committed to doing, Because that's what God wants you to do. Ask him for wisdom. Cry out to him for insight. Pray that he will bless you. So that uh, whatever may come upon you, whatever hardships and pains you go through, you might count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. Let's pray together. Our God and Father in heaven, we feel so deeply how we need your strengthening grace. We need the wisdom that comes from above. We need you to teach us these elementary things from your word. We we confess that we fail so much. We falter here in many ways. And we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit so that we might count it all joy and that we might be the instruments of your grace in ministering to our brothers and sisters around us, and that together as the people of God, we might be known by our joy in the face of adverse circumstances. We thank you that you are committed to our blessing, that uh, our happiness is tied up so much with our holiness, and we pray that we might not resist you but welcome your work in us, for the glory and honor of your name. What a testimony it would be uh, to others as we, through trials and difficulties, rest confidently in you as the God and Father of all mercy and grace. We pray that we would pursue your glory and that we would delight in you as the one who is pursuing our blessing. We look forward to that day, O God, when sorrow and sadness and sickness and pain and death itself will be no more when we will be ushered into that glorious kingdom of light and happiness, when the old order of things will pass away and all things will become new. But until then, gracious God, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you would make us steadfast, and that you would conform us to the image of your dear Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.